So we're in a series called Meeting Jesus, and tonight we're going to look at a continuation of what Ryan talked about last week. Uh, if you have your Bible, take it and turn to Mark chapter 2. Uh, last week, you guys were talking about the, the leper, uh, where, where Jesus healed the, the leper uh, and cleansed the leper. Uh, and so r- really what we're going to do is we're just going to pick the story right back up where, where he left off. Uh, he ended right there at, at Mark chapter 1, verse 45. We're going to pick up right there in, in Mark chapter 2. And the reason I was talking about friends and who it is that helped you meet Jesus is because tonight we're going to look at a, a group of men that were really intentional about taking their friend uh, to, to meet Jesus. Um, so uh, let me read. I'm going to start off in chapter 2, verse 1, uh, and then we're going, to, we're going to stop, we're going to move, we're going to stop, we're going to do all these things. You guys know how I do this, uh, so don't be surprised. So here we go. In, chap- in chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it, re- it was reported that he was at home. So let's stop there for a moment. Uh, where did Jesus just come back from? It says that he had just returned to Capernaum. So there's a couple things I want us to see in this, in this first verse as we start to kind of build this story around what's happening. Where did Jesus just come from? Well, a lot of, a lot of theologians say that he was out on a preaching tour. Uh, you know that we're at the very beginning of Mark, and you can read in the, in the syn- other synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew and Luke, and see that Jesus is at the very beginning of his ministry. In other words, Jesus' ministry has pretty much just taken off. Um, it hasn't been long to where, when Jesus was baptized. Uh, Jesus, um, at, at that point, went out into the wilderness and was tempted uh, in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He was fasting, and then after that, he was tempted. Uh, and then he came back. I think it's in Luke where it says that he returned in the Spirit to Galilee. Uh, and in Galilee, um, he, this is what you guys were, were talking about this past Sunday in Sunday school, uh, that Jesus had just returned to Galilee and was preaching in that area, and he received great he received a, 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 great, a great reception. People received what he said. And then it says that he went to Nazareth. What's important about Nazareth? What do you know about Nazareth? It's where he's from. How, what was the reception like from Sunday school? You guys talked about this, I think, this past week. What was his reception like in Nazareth? Not so good. So Jesus has just been out uh, on this preaching tour, when he was in Nazareth, when he got ran out of town, if you continue the story, it says, and then he went to the region of Galilee, to a town of Capernaum. And in Capernaum, he went straight to the synagogue. And in the synagogue, he preached. And he spoke words that were so, so prophetic. Uh, the things that he said were so astounding that the people were amazed at what he said. And then he went farther. He, he healed Uh, uh, He cast out unclean spirits from this person. And then from there at that night, he journeyed to this house, um, Simon Peter's house, uh, because Simon Peter's mother had had fallen ill. And so he, he, he healed her. And then from that home, many people that night brought other people to him to be healed. And then from there is when he left and he went on the preaching tour. And he went all around the region of Galilee. Now all that to say... Jesus has came back. And he returned to Capernaum after some days, and it was reported that he was at home. Now, I've, I've already given you an answer, if you were listening. Why is it that this is what Jesus calls this home now? Where, where is he from? Nazareth. Why does he not call that home? Well, they ran him out of town. 
As a matter of fact, they didn't just run him out of town. They took him to the edge of a cliff, and they were going to throw him off the cliff because they wanted him to check out what was at the bottom of the cliff. The best way to do that was just to throw him off, and when he got to the bottom, he'd see it, and he'd be dead. So Jesus somehow maneuvered him way through the crowd, and you know we can talk about how he did that some other time, but, and he left. So that's why, that's why he says that Capernaum is home. Most theologians agree. They say that Capernaum was probably the northern base of operation where Jesus operated out of. So this is where he was. This is what he called home. Now, home directly, that he, was, he was, uh, says that he was at home or he was in the house, whether that's Peter's house, whether that's another house, I don't know that that's really that important of a thing. But I will say that I think it was Peter's house, and I'll tell you why as, as we continue going through. So that's what's going on with Jesus, where he is. Um, he's been out... Um, he was ran out of his hometown, and so he's, he's just returned from this preaching tour. All that. Now, we've got a few more verses to go. We're off and running. Let's look at verse 2. It says, And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Let's stop there. Jesus is growing in popularity, especially in Capernaum. He's got a history in Capernaum. Um, he's already been at a house, this same house, this is the same house, I believe, this is the same house where he healed Peter's mother. This is the same house that after he healed Peter's mom, that he's back in now to where people know that he has healed other people there. So there's droves of people that are coming. See, usually when Jesus or, or, or a rabbi would come back into the town, they would go straight to the synagogue, and the crowd would gather around the synagogue, and this is where they would go. Jesus was not some normal rabbi. Jesus was a very popular person at this point in time in history. So there were people that were there that were looking for him. What's some of the other previous work he's done? Uh, I told you that when he came into Capernaum the first time, uh, in chapter 1, verse 22, it says that they were astonished at his teaching. This is in the synagogue. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So he taught with authority. People heard that in the synagogue in Capernaum. Later on in the house that night, it says that evening, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city gathered and was there together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So Jesus not only has a history in Capernaum, I believe from what I've, from what I've read and studied that it's at this very place that he has a strong history too. So this is why there's a crowd of people that are there with him. Um, now, in Mark, if you, as you read through Mark, and maybe in, in your personal time, you'll notice there's a use of one word that comes all the time. It's the word called crowd. Mark does a lot when he, when he talks. He says a lot specifically about the crowd. There was a crowd of people that followed Jesus. So let me help you understand a little bit about this crowd. As a matter of fact, here in verse 4, it says this, and we'll, we'll, we'll unpack this a little bit more together. But it says, and when they cannot get near him because of the crowd. There's that first use of that word crowd. So here's what the crowd was like. They were the group of people that would follow Jesus and just kind of stand off at a distance maybe. They, they didn't want to get too close because Jesus may ask them to do something. They really didn't want to do anything. They were just interested in what Jesus was doing, not so much what Jesus was saying and what Jesus was teaching. They were just interested because, hey, you know, when you have a car wreck on the side of the road, when you go down I-75, everyone kind of looks because, you know, they don't want to be involved, but we're nosy people, right? Yeah, we are. Well, we've always been that. So Mark really talks about the crowd of people that follow Jesus. 
Jesus had just came back from this preaching tour, so there's a crowd of people that came to him. But this is what Mark shows us every time, that the crowd, most of the time, almost every time, gets in the way. See, those people that really aren't really that interested in what Jesus is saying, what he has to say, what he's teaching, what he's going to do, those that are kind of standoffish in the background, you know what they do? They get in the way and they block the people that actually need to get to Jesus. Now, I want you to hear that because it's very important that we need friends like this paralytic has. Let me go on and read this so you can see this. The paralytic's friend, it says, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Don't you wish that all of us had a friend like this? They did not let the crowd get in the way. They, they saw what they were heading towards, and they would not let be stopped. My question is, is are you that type of friend? Are you the type of friend that when someone calls on you and needs you, do you let anything kind of get in the way and say, ah, this is going to be too discomfort. I can't do that. Maybe for those of you that drive, somebody calls and it's on the way. You know, you're here, you're going here, they're in here, they need to go there. They call and say, hey, uh, you know, my mom and dad have taken the car because they're getting the oil changed or whatever the case is. Could you stop by and grab me? Well, I, I really can't. Because it's inconvenient. It's not what you're saying, but that's what you're insinuating. Well, this was not the case for the friends that the paralytic had because they wanted this guy to meet Jesus. We'll see why as, as we keep going. Um, but they were determined. They kept pushing forward. You know, they were determined, much like in the Old Testament, we read about a guy by the name of Jacob. What do you know about Jacob? Jacob was a twin. What was Jacob's brother's name? Esau, what was their dad? Isaac, good. So Jacob um, is, is the youngest of the twin. Jacob, the name Jacob, actually means cheater, liar, or deceiver. They're all kind of synonymous with each other. And you know how important a name was back in the Old Testament. Um, when, when someone was named something, it was usually because of their appearance or their characteristics. Esau means red, right? So that, that was kind of like the, the, the appearance of Esau. So Jacob was thought of as the deceiver. Why? Well, he tricked his brother into selling him his birthright. Um, He tricked his father Isaac into um, giving him the blessing for the eldest son. Uh, And so as he did all of these things, to to, to keep the story short, Jacob runs off to go uh, live in another part of the world, another part of the world being a different region, different territory. He goes to live with his uncle. Now, some time has passed by. Jacob's on his way home, and he meets God on the way. And here's what happens with God when I'm talking about determination. Um, In uh, Genesis chapter 32, verse 26, it says this. um, He's wrestling with God. Then he said, the he being God, uh, then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said, and he said, what, he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have strived or striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there 
he blessed them. Jacob was a man that was determined. When he got a hold of God, he says, I will not let go of you until you bless me. That's the same determination that these four guys have with bringing their friend to Jesus. Imagine the scene. They show up at this place. There's a lot of people there. Uh, you know, a lot being in this time, they say that there was probably about 75 people packed into this little house. That's a lot. Um, so they see all these people packed in. I don't know how far they've came, what their journey was like, but I know they're carrying this paralytic. He can't walk. Now, whether he had a stroke, whether he was born this way, depending on who you read, will tell you that. And, and that's not important. It's just the fact that he can't walk. So they take him there. They get to the house, and they're like, well, there's no room. Let's go home. Well, that's not what they did. It wasn't that one of those things of like, look, it was really inconvenient for me to stop by and pick you up on the way to school because, I mean, you live like 100 yards off the path, and that's, you know, a 16th of a tank of gas. You owe me 25 cents. I mean, it wasn't that type of attitude that these people had with him. No, they got up to this place. They had the determination of Jacob. They saw an opportunity. They went around, whether it was up some stairs or whatever the case is, they went onto the roof, they pulled all the stuff back, got the tile back, um, all of the dirt and the debris and stuff, and they lowered him down, and they sat him right at the feet of Jesus. They were determined that this guy was going to have an encounter with Christ. But here's the, here's the weird thing. What they expected was not what God said. Look at what God said. It says this, what Jesus said. They lay, they lay him at his feet, and in verse 5, it says this, And when Jesus saw their faith, he saw how determined they were, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> wait, wait, hold up. You mean that we walked all the way to here, climbed up on top of the roof, tore the roof apart, lowered him down at your feet, and all you got is that, my son, your sins are forgiven? Now, this is why I think that this is the same house in Peter's house. What is it that Jesus was known to do in this house? Heal. Of course there was a multitude of people there. Jesus had done some pretty stinking cool stuff at this house. They have a paralytic friend. Jesus has came back into town, and they're like, hey, we're taking our friend, and we're going to get him healed that way he can walk. So they brought him all the way there. They laid him at his feet, and then all of a sudden, Jesus says, my son, your sins are forgiven. See, Jesus thinks on the spiritual realm, and we think on the physical realm. Most of the time, you think that your greatest need has something to do with physical. But you know that Jesus sees right into the center of you and who you are? To where, when we think what it is that we have the greatest need for, Jesus is like, that's not it. It's this. That was the case with this guy. They, they brought him in, they laid him at his feet, and, and, and Jesus says, hey, I'm going to heal you of your greatest need. It wasn't your physical ailment, it's your spiritual emptiness. So let me ask you this, why is it that people come to church on Wednesday nights? These are rhetorical questions. Why is it that people go to FCA club days, club meetings, Bible studies? Why is it that people go to, F, to, to Young Life throughout the school year? Why is it that people go to camp? Why is it that people do all of these things? Here's the reality. We have no idea 
what their need is. But it's important for us to be faithful and say, come. Why don't you come meet Jesus? I know that you may need this, but just, just come. Because Jesus is the one that sees right into our hearts. And he says, I know what you need even when you have no idea what it is that you need. But I'll show you. See, for us, it's about bringing. It's about being as determined as these four people were to bring their friend to encounter Jesus, to meet him along the way. Jesus sees right into the center, and he forgives of sins. Now, for this question, for this, I want to ask you this. Who is the only person that can forgive sins? God, right? Yes, Jesus. So, what is Jesus saying to the crowd when he says, I've seen your faith, my son, your sins are forgiven? What has he just said? He's made a claim. He says, hey, I'm God. Now, I don't know if this is going to shock you or not, but this was not the most popular answer that Jesus could give at the time when he says, my son, your sins are forgiven, because it caused a little stir in the crowd, but not in the way you think. Let's look carefully at the response of the people that were in the crowd when he said this. He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And in verse 6, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak, that li- why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, I'll be honest, there was a time to where I thought that there was almost a riot in the crowd that happened, to where these people started shouting, almost like it is at the end of Jesus' life when they're hollering, crucify him. You know, we want Barabbas free, crucify him. That was not the scene at all. This is, uh, the scribes were in the crowd, intermixed, and from what we see in Scripture, and we look at Luke to help us paint this whole picture of the gospel that's going on here, is that this is what they internalized. We don't even know that they spoke these things out loud. You ever thought something in your head? Somebody walks into the room and they're like, why in the world do they ever wear their shoes? That is the dumbest thing in the world. You, you guys have, I'm, I'm, hold on, I'm going to be truthful. You girls have done that, right? Right? Come, don't be afraid. You've done that, right? Yes. All of us girls, and myself included, because I'm a guy and I'm into shoes, we've done that before. We've said, hey, why do you have that on with your outfit? We don't speak that out loud. We don't have the ability to read someone's mind, and we can't change anyone's mind. So we internalize those things. Well, that's what's happening here. These scribes are sitting there, they're like, okay, he just blasphemed. He just claimed that he is God. And here's the cool thing about that. Do you know that Jesus knows your thoughts? And man, let me tell you what, that's a scary place to be, because sometimes our thought life, if we're completely honest with ourselves, our thought life is not the most pretty thing that we have in our life. Am I right? Yes. For those of you that are going to be honest with yourself, for those of you that are sitting like this, liar. That's what you are. Liar. I'm going to say it again. Our thought life is not the prettiest thing that we have because there's a lot of times there's a lot of dark things that go on in our mind. There's a lot of evil things that we think about someone. And if we're real, there's sometimes that our thought life gets into a lustfulness. Our thought life is not the prettiest thing. Do you know that Jesus sees your thought life? How do I know that? Well, because he sees their thought life. If we go to Luke, uh, you don't have to, but I will. I think it's Luke chapter 6. I'm going to pretend that's where it is. Uh, And I'm going to go there, and I'm going to hope, like, you know what, that that's where it is. Uh, In Luke chapter 6, it's a long journey to get there, apparently. Um, Here we go. 
And what well, we're not quite there yet. In Luke chapter 6, there it is, finally. Whew. Uh, Luke chapter 5, this is what he says in verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, now this is Luke's version of what's going on here. It's the same thing. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. Why do you question in your hearts? Jesus read their mind. Jesus saw into their thoughts. That's how awesome Jesus is. He knew that there were people there that in their minds were questioning the very thing that he was, he was a- asking himself this. He saw what was in their heart. So let me ask you this. So with that, l- l- let, me, let, me, let me ask you some real things real fast. What is it that Jesus has just claimed that he's done for this guy? He what? He what? Forgive him for his sins. What's the church word that we call that? This guy had just got what? Saved. Right. Now, let me ask you that. Did anything change when Jesus said that? I'm not talking spiritually. I'm talking physically for a moment. Did anything change? No. Jesus is like, Sam, and I'm not Jesus. Sam, I see your faith. Your sins are forgiven. Awesome. You know what the scribes could say? Here it comes. No, they're not. Yes, they are. No, they're not. I'm Jesus. Awesome. There's nothing different about Sam right now. How do I know that Sam is truly saved? Well, I'll tell you all that because it helps you understand why Jesus went down the path that he went where he was going here. When Jesus says this, he saw, he saw that what was going on in their hearts. Um, he says this, when he perceived in his spirit or in his, he knew their thoughts, that they questioned within themselves and said, why do you question these things in your heart? This is what Jesus said. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and take up your bed and walk. Which is the easier to say? Obviously, it's easier to say, hey, Sam, your sins are forgiven. Awesome. That's very easy because you can't disprove that. No way. The only way that you could disprove that is if somehow you could go in the spirit and be transported to the time that Sam died, whether moments later or 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road, and you were there at the judgment seat or the mercy, and you saw like, hey, oh, Sam went to hell. I guess she really wasn't saved that day. That's the only way that you can see that and know that for sure. But so what Jesus said, he just simply said, hey, your sins are forgiven. You can't disprove that, and you can't prove it. See, when you're truly saved, there's a spiritual change that happens in your life. Yes, you are forgiven from all the sin that you've done in the past. And technically, you're forgiven of all the sin that you'll do in the future. But for the moment, you are forgiven from every sin that you've done in the past. Your thought life, everything. The guiltiness that you've had, the penalty from your sin, you're forgiven. Spiritually, boom, it's done. But physically, you have a new nature. So when you walk forward from there, guess what? Physically things start to look different. Maybe you had a horrible mouth. You cussed all the time. You know what? You eventually will stop using those foul words because you will continue to grow. The evidence of your salvation will bear fruit. Maybe you'll start reading the Bible. Maybe you'll start attending church. You know, even though there may not be a visible change that happens right then, but when that moment happens, over time in a process, there is a physical change that starts to happen. Let's go back to Jacob for a moment. 
Jacob, essentially, theologians say, was saved that day. He was given a new name. He went from Jacob, deceiver, to Israel, one who walks with God. And God blessed him from there. He blessed him as as the father of nations. Now, my question is this. Spiritually, something happened to Jacob that day. Did anything physically happen to Jacob that day besides a name change? Someone said yes. Where are you? What happened? He limped away. This is not just pure happen chance that God does these things. God is perfect in everything that he does and the reason he does it. There's a spiritual change, but there's also a physical change that takes place. Now, let's transport back to where we are right now in this passage of Scripture. There has been a physical change, I'm sorry, a spiritual change that has happened with the paralytic. It's not what the guy thought when he walked in the door, literally was lowered down from the roof. He didn't think that he was going to come in there and, and, and say, hey, my son, my son, your sins are forgiven. He didn't even realize that was what his need was, but God changed his life spiritually that day. To prove it, he changed them physically. Look at what he did. It says this, which is easier to do, to say, son, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and take your bed and walk? Here it comes in verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. There was a spiritual change that happened in that man's life. To prove it, Jesus changed him physically, instantly, that day. He walked out of there. He rose and immediately picked up his bed, went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorifying God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Why did Jesus change him that day? There's a lot of reasons, but I'll keep it really simple. To prove the physical change that's happened in his life. You say that you're saved? How is your life different today because of what Christ has done for you? When I met Jesus, my life changed drastically. And this is how, I didn't even realize this until we got to Houston, Texas. I had a very good friend of mine, I'll call his name, I don't usually say it, Balconisti. He's a guy that I used to take a bucket and load it full of sin with when, I was in the, when we were in the military together. He left, moved to Houston about three or four years before I did. When I got to Houston, I didn't realize what had happened, the, the change that took place in my life. And he told me, he said, dude, you're not even like the same person that I knew in California. There's something different. Hallelujah. Praise God. Because that is showing the evidence of the spiritual change that's happened in my life. If you look back on your life today and you say, hey, I gave my life to the Lord two years ago. Do you look any different? Not really. You might want to go back and reanalyze what actually happened that day. I don't mean to be hateful, but if you plant a seed in the ground and on the package it has a tree and on that tree it's got these little orange baseball looking things on there and at the top it says a citrus tree or an orange tree. If you plant that thing in the ground and it starts growing other things like, I don't know, green apples or yellow lemons or something like that, you know what it's not? It's not an orange tree. 
If you say that you've planted Christ in your life and you still have envy, hatred, sexual morality, drunkenness, orgies, all of these things, you know what? I'm going to say in loving kindness, you're probably not a Christian. And that's not a judgmental thing. That's using Scripture for teaching, correcting, reproof, and training. And I know I didn't get those in the right order. But that's what we use it for. Why do I say this? Because somebody has brought most of you guys to Jesus. And you've met him. And you know that your life is different. Now do one more thing. Bring someone else to meet Jesus.